From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Imagine a patient who's anesthetized and intubated and he goes into the operating room and he's met with his surgeon and he has confidence in that surgeon. He believes that he or she is going to be the person who is going to take them through the procedure and be there in the recovery room and give them hopefully the good news that it went well. Unbeknownst to the patient, that surgeon, as the Book of Matthew might say, is serving two masters or maybe three masters. And the surgeon might be involved in multiple surgeries at the same time. And so while that patient is unconscious, intubated, obviously anesthetized, he or she may be operated on by a fellow or a resident in some substance, not the person entrusted to do the surgery. Doctors ghosting patients during surgeries, scheduling two or even three operations at the same time, and leaving during critical portions. It happens more than you may think, and it's been going on for years. That's because double or even triple billing Medicare can bring in hundreds of millions of dollars to hospitals and cost taxpayers billions. Attorney Ruben Gutman represents two doctors who blew the whistle on their fellow surgeons and were then fired by the Erlinger Health System in Tennessee. He compares the setup to Las Vegas. The reason I have that Las Vegas analogy is Uh, You have these hospitals, and they make their money on the room and the board and the tests and all the ancillary services that go part and parcel with the surgery. And they want to recruit doctors who can bring in patients, that is, kin to Las Vegas, bringing in, you know, patrons to the gambling halls. And so what they do is they give the doctors the run of the mill. They allow them to do whatever they want to make as much money as they want. And they reward them by allowing them to bill for surgeries for which they were not allowed to bill under the Medicare and Medicaid billing rules. And that's why it's kind of akin to Las Vegas. John Holland, senior investigative reporter for Bloomberg Law, has been investigating these concurrent surgeries, and he joins me now. So, John, you've reviewed more than a dozen federal and state lawsuits over these ghost surgeries. How prevalent are they? It's happening more than we thought. Basically, you go in, you have a surgeon, you've met with him. You've talked to him about what the procedure will be like. What the surgeon isn't telling them, at least in these lawsuits, is that I may not be there during large chunks of the operation. And a lot of patients never know. That's why you don't see too many malpractice claims connected with these, because the patients just don't know that their doctor didn't perform the surgery. Since the story ran, I have gotten 50 or 60 emails from doctors, hospital administrators, residents, saying that they've seen this problem firsthand, and it's far wider than even these lawsuits have talked about. So I was a little surprised just how widespread it is. 
Yeah. So just to be clear, are residents allowed to operate when the surgeon is there supervising? Yes. The residents cannot do what is called critical portions of a procedure. There is, as one of the doctors we talked to, there's nuance on that of how you define critical. But in general, the residents should be opening a patient, closing the patient, and doing some minor parts of a procedure only if the lead surgeon is in the operating room. He can't just walk away and turn over the patient to a resident. And in this case, that is what is happening. And you found cases where doctors billed for simultaneous surgeries, but at two different hospitals that were a mile apart. And that's exactly what's happening. We saw in the University of Southern California case where one of the chief star surgeons booked five surgeries for the same morning from 8 a.m. until 2 and wrote basically when he submitted the bill that he was there for the entire time of all five surgeries, even though they were in different operating rooms and one was conducted at a hospital more than a mile away. So obviously it was fraudulent. There was not a lot of mystery. From what we understand, all sides are deep in settlement talks and the case could be wrapped up later this month. I don't believe USC will contest some of these cases. That remains to be seen, but it looks like they're trying to settle. Is this about violating Medicare rules or violating patients' rights or harming patients? All of the above. In the beginning, I didn't expect to see the harm. I thought this was going to be more of a billing, a fraud issue. But as we started looking through these lawsuits and many others and started talking to a lot of different doctors, This is a real issue, particularly since you're putting someone under anesthesia for hours longer than they should be because you're bouncing from operating room to operating room. In some cases, the residents are finishing. In other cases, the residents are acting almost as babysitters waiting for the lead surgeon to come back. And that could be many hours, and that puts patients in danger. One of the studies that we cited looked at hip surgeries a year out, and it found that without any question, the adverse outcomes went up exponentially the longer someone was under anesthesia. And that was directly tied to doctors not performing one surgery and then moving on. So it's a little of both. If these claims are being filed, five claims at once, different hospitals, why isn't Medicare catching that? That is the biggest question I have. And we are following up very hard on that now to see why does it take doctors coming forward to essentially expose their own institution? Why is Medicare not catching these very blatant billing practices? We didn't get into the subtle ones of the story. I took the ones that, after spending months on this, were as open and shut as we could possibly find. It's hard to believe that Medicare would be shelling out hundreds of millions of dollars without somebody saying, hey, there's a problem here. And so that is the thing I'm working on right now to see if we can nail down what is going on and why did nobody catch this. Are we talking hundreds of millions of dollars, billions, when you consider all these? When you look at this, it's in the billions. The government alleged in the Pittsburgh case that it was thousands of surgeries done by a particular doctor, Dr. Luktich. Southern California attorneys are claiming that this is several hundred million at that one institution alone. And Ellinger Hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, they are alleging minimum of 8,500 concurrent or overlapping surgeries. So again, that would get into the tens of millions of dollars worth of billings. It is staggering the amount of money that we're talking. And it's equally staggering that nobody caught it. 
And so that's what we're trying to figure out. The next step is what is going on here in terms of the payment. The first focused on the patients and the practices and the deception. But the bigger question for the next round is why did nobody catch this? So there are a lot of people in an operating room. I'm shocked that a lot of those people haven't talked about this, complained about this, reported this. Apparently they have. There have been a lot of internal complaints at hospital. In 2015, the Boston Globe did a great series on this, their spotlight team, looking at just one hospital, Mass General. And they talked to a star surgeon named Dennis Burke, and they talked to their top anesthesiologist, Lisa Wallman, who went on the record about the problems they were seeing. But it wasn't enough to get the hospital to stop what it was doing. It was only after lawsuits came that the hospital changed its ways a bit. But that was rare. And the hospital, the medical profession is very tight-lipped, and they do not speak up against each other. It's very tough to even get a doctor to testify at trial against another doctor in malpractice cases. So it doesn't surprise me just because of the nature of the profession. You risk losing your career. So it's sometimes you may be outraged, you may complain internally, but then you throw your hands in the air and say, what can I do about this? And that is, based on all of the doctors I talk to and all the attorneys, that is the biggest problem. People are afraid to come forward because the hospital can crush them. And Ruben Gutman told me that two clients who were nationally recognized orthopedic surgeons were crushed after they reported concurrent surgeries on the hospital's internal system. So our clients made a report to the hospital to document their concerns, which they had been articulating for a period of time. And then within 48 hours, as our complaint alleges, their services at the hospital were terminated. It's been almost impossible for them to get a position in the United States. And two of them are now in Scotland. These are folks of national reputation. They are probably some of the leading surgeons in the country. And what Erlanger has done to them is made it impossible for them to get jobs and essentially try to destroy their careers. But, you know, I, as a lawyer, believe that at the end of the day, when the full story comes out, as it has been, these folks are our national heroes. And in that case, the doctors say they filed the report because hospital administrators suggested they do so. And then they got fired. Two days later, after being told by the administrators, we're going to address this, put it in writing so that we can do something about it. And according to lawsuit, they did do that. They were very respected surgeons. Both taught at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. One of them had been born in Erlanger, and she wanted to go back and be closer to her family. Her husband was the head of orthopedics. He was one of the best orthopedic surgeons in the country. And within two years, they were gone. Talking to them, they said the practices were so much worse than they had ever seen, they felt like they didn't have a choice. They had to speak up. They kept assuming that the hospital would fix it. They didn't realize they were losing their jobs until it was too late. They kept thinking, we'll expose it, we'll write the ship, and we'll come up with new policies. And instead, they kept the policy and fired the surgeon. Explain why these respected doctors are now practicing in Scotland because they couldn't get a job in the U.S. after reporting this. Because in the beginning, they couldn't explain. These are sealed lawsuits. So they couldn't even say why they left the hospital or that they had these going. They suddenly were no longer at the hospital. They were fired, and they couldn't get a good reference. But everything about their case was sealed. They couldn't even say I filed a lawsuit or describe any of the reasons for them leaving. So suddenly you're unemployed. And you can't explain why, and the hospital's refusing to give you a recommendation. 
it stay under seal for years. That was just unsealed in March. That's why I found it. And the other one was unsealed about a year ago, the USC case. So it takes a lot to come forward. Lisa Woolman quit before she was fired, which made her life a little easier. But trying to explain why I walked out of Mass General without being able to provide the details, she said it ruined her career for about a year. I think the scariest part of your article is this. Some of Erlanger's residents were so unskilled that the hospital's own doctors said in secretly recorded conversations they were concerned about leaving them alone in operating rooms. And according to the lawsuit, an orthopedist told a colleague, Resident 3 is scarier. He's got this spasmodic index finger. You know he makes an incision, and it's just, oh, my God, stop. I mean, that's just astonishing. It was stunning to me. And this is the type of thing, as a reporter, you wouldn't include in a story very often because I don't trust it. In this case, they were fully recorded. These conversations were recorded. There were transcripts filed with the court. This happened. So during my fact check and once I started talking to the attorneys, I realized these were serious attorneys that are not going to put that in a filing. And then they had transcripts and tapes. So this is a whole different level than I have ever come across. Clearly, they're problems with those residents that they're turning patients over to. Erlanger told you in a statement that it strongly denies the claims and looks forward to the truth coming out during the court proceedings. I'm wondering if the truth about residents performing surgeries ever comes out in personal injury lawsuits or whether it's too hard to find out if a resident did perform the surgery. It's very difficult to tell, especially since when you are harmed, you may never know that there was a resident doing any portion of your surgery. That is not something that comes out. And most attorneys know so little about this practice that they never even wind up looking for in discovery. It's basically been a well-held secret by the medical profession. And while it comes out once in a while, like the Boston Globe series a decade ago, for the most part, hospitals do a good job of keeping this down and keeping this quiet. And I think judging by the response I'm getting, that's going to change. I don't think there's much doubt. Doctors and surgeons around the country and professors at medical schools have all been reaching out to me. Do we assume that the administrators of these hospitals know what's going on because they're handling the billings? Yes, they would have to. And there are also strong federal law on paying kickbacks to doctors to pay them for referrals because there can be conflict of interest where they would basically prescribing unneeded surgeries. In this case, the administrators were paying these huge sums to doctors. It was a Dr. Samadhi out of Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. He made $5 million in one year, according to federal prosecutors. And that was in large part because of improper kickback. Dr. Luktich made millions of dollars. According to federal prosecutors, that was Again, improper payments that were in violation of federal anti-kickback statutes. So it can't happen if the administrators don't know about it. They just wouldn't be because nobody could pay them. Are the lawsuits we're talking about all false claim lawsuits? For the most part. Dr. Burke was a wrongful termination. He was the mass general doctor. But all of the others that I mentioned in the story were false claims cases. I looked at maybe a dozen others that were a combination of false claims and employment law. But for the most part, these are doctors coming forward and filing on behalf of the government. Explain a little more for those who don't know the mysterious world of false claims lawsuits. I am learning on the fly. But essentially, and you see it with defense contracting quite a bit, if 
someone is being paid by the federal government and they commit fraud on the federal government, anyone who learns about it and can expose that fraud is entitled to file a lawsuit as long as they can prove the allegations on behalf of the Justice Department. It remains under seal often for many years while the Justice Department investigates. And then the Justice Department has a choice of joining the lawsuit or often if they see it's going well, they just step out of the way and they let the attorneys and the plaintiff continue their lawsuit. And then when there's a settlement, the Justice Department steps in and signs off on that settlement and gets all of the money. So if there's a settlement for $100 million, it goes to the government, to taxpayers. And then the whistleblower will get 30% of whatever the settlement is. But all of the money is filed and goes to the U.S. government, and the whistleblower gets paid on the back end. If it's a false claims, are there any provisions then for things to be corrected at the hospital so it doesn't happen again? That is usually as part of the settlement. And we saw this in Pittsburgh. The government said that it was going to be auditing some of the surgeons' practices. They were going to be monitoring them for three years. That's a little unusual just because that was one that the Justice Department took over from the initial attorneys. For the most part, if there's just a settlement, there aren't a lot of restrictions placed on the hospital. Lisa Wallman, the anesthesiologist at Mass General, as part of her settlement, she insisted that the hospital change its consent form. So the patients would know 100% who was going to be doing their surgery. So that was just her tenacity winning out on that issue. But for the most part, unless the government handles it directly, there aren't a lot of sanctions put in at the end. You also reported about the University of Southern California's hospital system being accused of billing for thousands of cases where the teaching physician left residents unattended to perform even spine and brain surgeries. And this kind of goes to the heart. The allegations at the USC that they were different outcomes at their different hospitals, where in one of the um, hospitals in the system, patients were more than twice as likely to be injured or harmed during surgery. According to the lawsuit, it's mentioned several times in the lawsuit, the attorney and the surgeon who brought the lawsuit alleged that one of the administrators said that's where we send residents to practice on poor folks. So if the lawsuit is correct, and it seems to be in the final stages of settlement, the hospital knew that it was putting patients in one of their institutions in harm, but they were doing it so that they could have residents practicing their work. And that was pretty stunning. I found so much in your story stunning, John, and I hope you'll come back with the next part of your investigation. Thanks so much. That's John Holland, senior investigative reporter for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.